sure it was a short week. Reality. John chapter 8 this morning, if you want to turn there for our scripture reading. John chapter 8. I hope you don't bring any those big bugs back with you. <laughs> Just a few verses here this morning to get us started. Verse 31 of John 8 says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Well, let's pray. Father, we are thankful uh, for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, who freed us, who rescued us from uh, the penalty of sin on the cross. We're so thankful for that gift that was paid. And Father, we're thankful as well that we could come together to worship you today, uh, to gather together, to look into your word and sing your praises. And Father, even this morning to review with Emily, Father, this opportunity to implant the Word of God in our lives, Father. And we pray that the things that were taught might stay with these children and might watch over them. And Father, we think of our coming ministries even in our area yet ahead, Father. We think of other um, camps that the very people, various people will be part of. And Father, we just pray that you would watch over the, each one and pray that the Word of God might continue to go out in truth. And, and Father, so many times, Young young person's first contact with the Lord Jesus is through camps or VBSs, and we pray that you continue to bless those ministries yet ahead. And Father, we think to our family campo coming ahead, coming up in August, Father. We just pray that this too could be a time which would honor you and encourage the saints. And so, Father, we're thankful for each one who's here today. We're thankful that for the oneness we can enjoy in Christ. Thank you for the common love we share in Him and the life that we can enjoy in Him. And Father, we pray for those who aren't with us today, wherever they are, that you'd watch over each one that they too would be walking with you, enjoying you, and that you continue to draw them to your side. And so, Father, we give thanks for your word today. Just pray that you prepare our hearts now as we spend a few moments in your word. Encourage us and teach us in the way we ought to go, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Bible views this world as being bound, doesn't it, in chains, under the effects of sin, the curse of sin, the control of sin, the influence of sin. And that's how the Bible views mankind ever since the fall, is that mankind is enslaved or bound to, to the, the principle of being under sin and its curse and effects. And we're going to be discussing here for the next few weeks both the eternal and spiritual freedom found in Christ. And it's something we need to, to study and look into it so that we might enjoy it more fully as we see what the Bible has to say about spiritual freedom. It's a freedom we receive through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a freedom we enjoy in our relationship with Christ. Freedom from sin's curse and control in our lives. But before we begin, we want to recognize and remember that the, the basis and source of our freedom is God himself. God is a God of victory and a God of life. The freedom that we have in, in Christ is provided by grace based on the victory Jesus secured through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. It's such a terrible and yet wonderful price was paid to secure our freedom from eternal hell. And the freedom we enjoy in our daily lives is enjoyed by grace, by the power that God supplies to us. 
And as the scripture describes a life that is rescued from sin as the abundant life, and also a life of abundant power. Because God is a God of life, He's a God of freedom, He's a God of victory. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. And that power is truly abundant, as God is at work in us and through us. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, in another prayer of the apostles, he says this, The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Our God is a God, God of victory. He is a God of power. And I want to play for you this morning. I'm just going to plug in, if you want to slide that open. Uh, a song that has been kind of precious to me throughout the years. We did test this and everything was working this morning. But it's a song that depicts the, the almighty power of our God. That our God is a God of victory, a God who reigns, and it's been a great encouragement to me. And I just finally decided to share it with you this morning. I trust you enjoyed that. It's, uh, the amazing thing is, is that God is for us, isn't he? And when we think of the freedom and the victory we have in Christ, it's because our God always wins. There's a verse in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where the Lord Jesus explains why he came, or quotes a passage in reality that explains why he came. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And we know Jesus came to set people free. And though when that verse was read, Israel was at a place where they were looking for national freedom. We recognize this verse also applies to the spiritual freedom that we have in Christ. And it really is a wonderful declaration of God's love for mankind to rescue us from that which we, to which we were bound, under the curse and influence and control of sin in our life. And, and really bringing to us the sure hope and deliverance from all that is broken in life. Because we know sin has caused death and destruction. Yet Jesus came to free us. The God who is a God, God who always wins. A God of life, power, and victory. Now freedom in the Bible, which we'll be looking at for the next few weeks, involves, first of all, our eternal salvation, doesn't it? Deliverance from sin's consequence and its curse. And in Christ, when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are set free from the condemnation of sin, from eternal hell. But we're also free to live in eternal glory as the sons of God, are we not? Secondly, freedom in Christ also has to do with being freed from the domination of sin in our lives, from the control of sin. Before we were saved, we were enslaved to sin, is how the Bible views it. And yet, in Christ, we find a freedom to live a right life, the way God intended, not the way the world designed, not under the destructive influences of sin and under Satan's program. And it's all because Jesus broke the power of sin on the cross. And in doing so, he restores us to a right relationship with God as sons and daughters of God. And then thus we are free to live victorious in sin in our life. Now, it's a growth process, but that freedom 
is something we find in Christ. And we won't find until we're in Christ, in reality. The third aspect of our freedom is the freedom to live as we choose before God. We call that Christian liberty, don't we, in the scriptures. The Bible refers to our liberty that we have in Christ. And just to explain a little bit, when we think about living the Christian life, we are to walk by faith, aren't we? The just shall live by faith. And so we walk, in our walk of faith, we live according to God's word. That's, that's where we put our faith, our trust, in the directions God communicates to us through his word. But obviously there are many areas in life, decisions that we make every day, that are not explicitly addressed in God's word. Those gray areas, aren't they? And yet even in these, we are to walk by faith, we're told in the scriptures. We're to seek God's will and the desire to be holy like he is holy. Now, as God communicates to us his will through his word and expects us to walk by faith in his word, we recognize that, first of all, there are commands and directives that are clear in the Bible. Thou shalt not lie, lie, steal, kill, kill, and so on. And those are things that we don't have to pray about, things that we don't have to think about whether or not to obey them or how to apply them. It just says, thou shalt not, or thou shalt. Those are clear, they express. We just need to pray for the grace instead to live them in our lives. And then the Bible also gives us principles and precepts to guide our lives, to guide our decisions. There are guidelines in our decision-making. One of those might, might be in Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.17, where God says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Well, that's a general principle. It doesn't tell you specifically what areas that you are to separate from in your life, the areas that you're supposed to be distinct from the world. It is a guideline that you prayerfully Pray for God's grace and direction and wisdom in applying that principle. Those are, the, those are just one of many, many precepts that we see by way of teaching and even by way of example and how God dealt with people in biblical history. And there's those divine biblical principles that are to guide our decision-making many times in cases in life. And so there, in that case, we pray as how to apply those principles and have wisdom in how God would have us to live it out in daily experience. And then there's also promises in the Bible to trust in, aren't there? promises of God's wisdom, comfort, strength, and so on, that we rest in, that we find, we find comfort in, that we deal with in our daily lives. And then there are the gray areas, those areas of decision not addressed in the Bible, and, and much of life involves those decisions in reality, don't they? Much of our 24-7 lives involves areas that may not be directly addressed in the Bible by way of commandment or by way of precept, and yet we are to make those decisions by faith, prayerfully seeking seek, seek God's will in the matter. And yet the freedom that is involved in this aspect of life is a freedom for each of us individually to live as how we choose before God. That's the freedom. We're not, we're not directed by some clergy, by, by a dictator. We are directed by God and God alone. That's the freedom we enjoy as we respond to Him. And so, first of all, we make those decisions. We seek not to, we obviously are not to step outside of the clear teaching of God's Word, but then we are to make wise decisions in those areas that are greater, areas of Christian liberty. Areas that believers, in all honesty, often criticize each other over because we don't, sometimes don't understand why a person lives the way they do, does what they do, because we would maybe never do it that way. But it's this very area of liberty and freedom that brings variety to life as God directs each of us in our various bents and areas of growth in life. The question is, is the Bible silent in those areas? And yet it is not. The Bible does give guidelines 
for the enjoyment of our liberty in Christ. It gives structure to enjoyment of our liberty in Christ. And we'll be looking at that eventually because there is confusion about the exercise of liberty today. And so we'll look forward to seeing what the Bible says about that in the next few weeks. But let's start, first of all, with our foundation, our freedom found in Christ. And for that, let's go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is a challenging chapter because Paul is very much in teaching mode and, and maybe overstating the same principle mode, you might say, and, and yet it sets forth this idea of our enslavery to sin because much of the world does not realize that they're guilty before God. They don't realize that they have offended a holy God, their creator, and that before God they stand condemned. And they're born into life that way, separated from God, and separated not only in time, but apart from his intervention and his salvation in our life, separated for all eternity. And that's something that people need to understand. And Romans 7 explains that here, and we'll just kind of step through this, beginning in verse 1, where he says, Oh, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. And so he's speaking to those who know the word of God. And in this Bible times, it was, it was to brethren, other brothers and sisters, possibly Jewish brethren, but those who know what God expected. This is kind of an accountability principle, isn't here? If God teaches you something, reveals something to you, he's going to hold you accountable to it. And so he's speaking to those who know the word. And he says he's, and he's going to point out one specific teaching, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. That's one thing. As we're, if we know the word of God, it has dominion over us. It's our, it's our guide for life. And then he goes on to use marriage as an illustration in verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. That's a teaching of the law. The Old Testament teaching is that marriage was for life. She's bound her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And so he sets forth the biblical teaching that is the basis of this illustration. Marriage is forever, but if the, in this case the husband passes on She's released from that law, no longer bound to that obligation. But verse 3 goes on, so that if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she wouldn't be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulter, adulteress, though she has married another man. And so he, he brings home that lesson, does he not? Verse 4, we get to the point here of this passage. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, through the body of Christ, that you might be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What Paul is saying is that the law had a claim on us. Because when the law became presented itself, you might say, it, it, it revealed these evil passions in me. And that's what he's saying. When we come in contact with the truth of God and stack ourselves up with the word of God, the person of God, it reveals the darkness in us. Light reveals darkness. And when I learn the Bible, I realize that I fall short. You begin to agree with God. And he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That describes me. There's none righteous, no, not one. That's me. And that's what the law, that's the effect the law had. And so the Ten Commandments specifically, which is the centerpiece of this discussion, in all of its moral principles, really declares somebody guilty. And that's what he's saying here. That when I confronted the law, it aroused in me, it really, what he's saying is it made me aware of how sinful I was. And that's why you might often see, maybe not only in the scriptural account, but
in human history, biblical history, his Christian history, that often the longer we live, the more we become aware of our sinfulness, of our independence and our rebellion before God, our selfishness before God. Because as we continue to learn the glorious truth of God and His holiness, we begin to see our sinfulness. And that's exactly what he says here. But, he says, but now, verse 6, he says, we've been delivered from that law. How? Because we've been delivered through the body of Christ, as he, as he mentions back in verse 4. Therefore, my brother, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, Jesus paid the penalty. He fulfilled the law's requirement. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. And that's what the world's unaware of. That our sin before the Holy God has a payment that's required. That payment is eternal death. But Jesus paid that penalty. And so the law has been satisfied. There is no longer a case held against mankind because of, because of the eternal consequence of his sins. Because Jesus paid it all on the cross. And he's saying that we become dead or separated from that demand through the body of Christ. And when we trust Christ as Savior, we become freed. <coughs> Excuse me, liberated. There's no longer a debt that we have to pay. We've been freed from that debt, delivered from that debt. And we, we now, once again, can have hope in Christ. And as verse 6 says, we can serve in newness of the Spirit. We have new life in Christ. But he goes on here to explain further, just to make his point, as Paul does in this chapter. What shall we say then? Is a law sin? Obviously, the problem wasn't with the moral standard of the law. Certainly not, he says. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except the for the law, for I would not have known covetousness, and the law said that you shall not covet. It's pretty basic, isn't it? He says, the problem was with the law, the problem was with me, and when God says, thou shalt not covet, I went, mm, that's me. And I'm violating the, the commands and holy principles of a holy God. It declares me guilty. And verse 8 says, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment, I believe sin refers to the principle of sin within, our sin nature, our propensity to sin, it took opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It simply means it wasn't there. It means I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't aware of how sinful I was. How evil I was. Verse 9 says, I thought I was a good guy. I was alive once without the law. I thought I was doing pretty good. But then I came in contact with the Holy God. But when the commandment came, verse 9, sin revived and I died. I realized I was dead in sins. And the commandment, which I at one time thought brought life, I found to bring death. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says this about the Ten Commandments. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped and that the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, many people today think like Paul originally thought back in his day. And when you ask them, that question of how do you think a person gets to heaven, many will say, well, keep the Ten Commandments. And that's what Paul says. You know, I thought they were the path to life, good works. Keep the Ten Commandments and I'll get to heaven. In reality, God says here that it's what, through the law is a knowledge of sin. And we honestly stack ourselves up against the Ten Commandments, which in many cases, people who say that don't even know the Ten. But when we do, we find ourselves guilty. That's all Paul's saying here. Now, all this explanation, that's what he's saying here. But the glorious thing, according to Galatians 3.13, is Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He fulfilled the law. 
we are no longer under its condemnation because Jesus goes on to say he became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Well, the discussion goes on, but we get the point. First of all, that when Jesus came to free us, to set us at liberty, he came to free us from that, from something under which we were held. And that's why righteousness is not by the law. And Galatians goes on to say, if righteousness came by the law, then Christ died for nothing. But is it impossible for a sinner to absolve himself from his sin because the pen, God's required penalty is death, eternal death. But Jesus paid that death to release us, to free us from death to eternal glory. Turn to me, if you will, just for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. And that's the good news. That's what the power of God has accomplished. He accomplished something that we could never accomplish. We could never rescue ourselves. We couldn't pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We could never cleanse the stain of sin. But instead, 2 Timothy 1.10 says, But now Jesus has been revealed, says, has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life, brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And I think as we begin our study in freedom this morning, we need to be reminded that we are we are not of this world system. We've been free. We've been set free in Christ. We are now sanctified ones in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you he made alive. That's you Christians in Ephesus. He made alive. That's the victory we have. We have a God of power and a God of life. We were dead in trespasses of sins. Verse 2, In which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves. Notice once. This is all past tense. In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You know, as you begin to study the deliverance and freedom that we have in God, it, it, it encourages us to live as free ones, to live as children of God, free from the clutches of sin, distinct from the world, because verse 4 has this, this big but in it, actually, where it says, but God, but God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he's raised up together. He's made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, when you sit back and consider Romans 7 in our original condition under sin is being held captive, imprisoned, bound for a eternal hell in the lake of fire, and you read the good news and see the glorious future God has for us. You just want to say, wow, wow, wow. That's our God. And that God who saves us is the one who's, who secures us, the one who, who in the end will win and we will be with them. Because the penalty has been paid once and for all and forever. And in the ages to come, this is the promise he makes to his children. In the ages to come, he's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This God who always wins is a God who's for us. For the saved, that means they can be liberated from under that under which they're held, the condemnation and control of sin. For the saved, it's a source of joy and rejoicing because of our eternal future. It's a comfort of our security because even when we fail, sins have been paid for, the battle has been won, the price has been paid, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so as we go on in our study, we're going to discover more and more of the riches 
for the freedom and the victory we have in Christ. John 8, 36, remember we read, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, uh, we want to acknowledge today that you truly are an awesome God. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Father, you are, God, you are God of victory, a God of power. And Father, thank you that you are for us. Thank you that we rest in what you provided in your grace, in your love, in your power. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Thank you for the new life we have in him, the abundant life we have. And Father, we can look forward to in, enjoying a walk with you in an abundant life here in a glorious eternity because of your favor towards us. Thank you for your grace. Encourage our hearts to these things today, now we pray in Jesus' name.